Right. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, today uh, we are going to think about architecture and architectural theory, and one particularly important strand of architectural theory, um, namely space and, and, and thinking about architectural space. But um, I was going to start the lecture by sort of think, making some more general remarks about architecture, and in particular um, thinking about where architecture might belong in, in the history of art. Because I think, uh, for those of you um, in your second year, we've done a, a little bit of architecture. Um, we did a bit, you did a bit last year with me, but not very much. Um, and I think it's sort of, we don't often think about, as art historians, whether architecture might be a little bit different, something that, 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 that we might have to study in, a, in, in, in different ways and think about in different ways to other, what we might call, art objects. And actually, I think architecture occupies a slightly strange position in history of art teaching and in history of art degrees. Architectural historians, such as myself, often can be found in art history departments. But, there, as I said, there are, there are certain things that we might do differently. I think architecture also has a complicated relationship with the other visual arts. And it's a relationship that has the potential, well, to put architecture in, in, rather, in a rather powerful and important position. If you think about it, most um, of the visual arts have to exist, other visual arts have to exist in architecture. And to some extent, um, architecture might be seen as a master discipline. As the as the as the one sort of art form that all the others in theory have to comply to. This is certainly um, what a, a great many sort of writers on architecture have seen. Um, one writer on architecture, not necessarily an architect, who was trained as an architect, but he wasn't very good. Um, he wasn't a very good architect. He's a much better designer of wallpaper. Um, <laughs> was William Morris, who um, in 1888, in a very famous text, the Revival of Architecture, which is mainly um, a text concerned with 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 the Gothic Revival and the theory behind the Gothic Revival, noted at the very start that, in fact, architecture was a master art, that, that the, ornament, the other ornamental arts are largely dependent on it. And what William Morris means here, I think, we can see if we, if we go and have a look in his house. Here is his house, the Red House, a very, very famous house, and a house that was famous, as famous, if not more famous, for its decoration um, than, than for its design. Um, I don't, you know, we don't, we're not going to go into this in very much detail because you, you probably know all this. Here's all the very, very famous um, furniture and, and, and decorative features of the Red House, all designed by a combination of Morris and Rossetti and Burne Jones and etc. etc. But actually, the point that Morris is making in that quote is that as important as all these are, and, and some of them have gone on to become sort of very famous and important um, pieces of art in their own right. As important as they all are, they, they, they all also have to obey the logic of, of, the, of the design of the house, of, of Webb's design, the design of the house being um, by the architect Philip Webb, not by Morris. They all belong, they were all designed to belong somewhere um, within, within Webb's overall design. And okay, this might be an extreme case, um, but, I think it's, but I think it's an important one that because of architecture's spatial properties, it has, it has the potential um, to be to be very very to be, to be a dominant art form in this respect. The early twentieth century German architect Bruno Tauck takes this even further, um, and in a, a sort of artistic manifesto from nineteen eighteen, actually just calls for the scrapping of boundaries um, across the visual arts and just lumping them all in one architecture. She says there will be in the future there will be no boundaries between the crafts, sculpture, and painting. All will be one architecture. We're not there yet, but fingers crossed. Um, so Tout, like Morris, um, sees the potential for architecture to encompass everything, for the potential for all arts to actually just be one architecture or architectural decoration. And like Morris, Tout is, is sort of interested in buildings in which decorative arts obey the laws of the buildings. He didn't design very much, but one of the things he does design um, is this, the glass pavilion for for an exhibition in Cologne in 1914. And like the Red House, it's a sort of example of what we might call the Stampkunstwerk. So everything, you know, everything's obeying the same principle. It is a total work of art. But if you think about the, the, the general principle of Gestampkunstwerk, particularly when it comes to this sort of stuff, it's architecture, architecture is where the buck stops. Um, all these other decorative arts, in this case lots and lots of mosaics, um, ultimately have to end with architecture. Architecture is what is housing them. 
and I suppose that's the sort of the, this sort of um, pro-architecture rant that I've just been on. The, the, the sort of concluding remarks is that what this tells us about architecture, why architecture hold, has this position, is because of its inherently spatial properties, because of its three-dimensional properties, but also because it is space um, in which humans live in or interact in or exist in. Paint, if you think about it, so the paintings and sculpture are, we can see as sort of products of human society and culture. Architecture is where human society and culture takes place on the whole. Here is um, a famous architectural historian, Nicholas Pevsner, on this subject. Pevsner says that what distinguishes architecture from paintings and sculpture is its spatial quality. In this and only in this, no other artist can emulate the architect. Thus, the history of architecture is primarily a history of man and woman, that's me, I that, shaping space. And the historian must keep spatial problems always in the foreground. Which is fine. Which is all well and good, and I think that you know that's that's quite an apparent point. That's quite an obvious point. That architecture has has spatial properties that other art forms lack, perhaps lack. The problem, I think, is though how, as a historian of architecture, or as somebody that studies or writes about architecture, how then do we write a history of humans shaping space? How do, how do you go about that process? How do we deal with this with this property of architecture? the spatial property of architecture. How, in, in Pevson's words, do we keep spatial problems always in the foreground? Well, I think if you actually look at the history of architectural writing and, and, and the sort of development of architectural history, potentially most historians who have written about architecture have not obeyed Pevson here. They have not kept <coughs> spatial problems always in the foreground. As an example of this, and as, as, a, as a historian that, that I think you probably all know, um, Wolflin's treatment of architecture is, to is largely contrary to, to what Pevsner is calling for. He also isn't, doesn't really, isn't very interested in, in, in what Morris and Tout were talking about early, the, earlier, the idea that, that the other art forms might have to obey the laws of architecture. The principles of art history, which, which I think you, you should probably all know, treats architecture in a way, it, it, just, it just treats it as firstly just one of numerous art forms, but secondly as an art form in which the, the laws of the others can just be applied to. Here is uh, Wolflin talking about architecture, and I think this is a really interesting quote, it, it reveals quite a lot about where Western thinking in the early 20th century had got to when it came to architecture. So Wolflin says, uh, the, the examination of painterly and unpainterly, which of course is one of Wolfram's big things in the tectonic arts, and by tectonic arts he means architecture, is especially interesting in that the concept, here for the first time liberated from con confusion with the demands of imitation, can be appreciated as a pure concept of decoration. Of course, for painting and architecture, the position is not quite the same. Architecture of its very nature cannot become art, an art of semblance, to the same degree as painting, yet the difference is only one of degree and the essential elements of the definition of the painterly can be applied as they stand. So what Wolfgang is saying here is that architecture, because architecture is, does not deal with the demands of imitation, as he calls it, which paintings and sculpture do all they do in, in 1915 anyway, it can be appreciated as a pure, a pure concept of decoration. In other words, Wolflin just treats architecture as sort of very abstract art. It's not imitative, it's not representational, um, it's pure decoration. And then he goes on to say, um, you know, it's, it's not an art of semblance to the same degree as painting, but um, the difference is only one of degree, and the essential elements of the definition of painting can, apply, can be applied as they stand. So architecture is, is, a sort of, is, is less representational, it's, it's more abstract. And in that, in that respect, it can be sort of treated as an, almost an extreme form of painting, just one that we can, we can apply all our usual rules of painterly and unpainterly to, but potentially you can see them in their most sort of pure form in architecture, which, you know, Fulflin does to great effect. And here are two famous examples. These don't come from the principles of art history. These come from um, Wolflin's Renaissance and Baroque. This is one of important... Wolflin comparison um, to buildings that for Wolflin sum up his famous transition from linear um, to painterly. Uh, Bramante's Renaissance building, the Tempietto, 
from the 16th century, early 16th century church in Rome, and Borromini's Santivalis Sapienza uh, in, from the preceding, from the sorry, from the following century, the painterly, the Baroque. But if we go back to that Pevsner quote, Pevsner's demand for us to to um, to engage with the spatial properties of architecture, to, to think about how people shape space. Well, Wolfram is not in the slightest bit concerned with that. He's treating these as extreme decoration, you know, as pure forms of decoration. Wolfram is in no way writes about the function of these buildings, what takes place in these buildings. <coughs> they both happen to be churches, but, but that's not really of great concern to Wolfram. And he doesn't really think about the, he doesn't think about the three-dimensional volume within them to any great degree, or only when it, when it plays a, a role in the decorative scheme. He certainly doesn't think about what it might be like as a user of these buildings, the, what, what, what the experience of these buildings might be like. He treats them essentially as, as, as almost two-dimensional art objects, as art objects that will obey the same rules as paintings and sculpture. But as we've seen, and as I think we'll go on to see, they're, they're potentially not. They've, they've got things in them that, that might make them different. So, we've see, so, so we, we, we get to this position in early 20th century art history where architecture's just been lumped in with everything else or, has, or, or even is seen as a sort of more extreme exemplar um, of the visual arts than, than anything else. I wonder how this happened. I, I'm, going, I'm now going to sort of go back through the history of, of architectural theory and try to work out how we got to this point how we got to a point in which the spatial properties of architecture can be so spectacularly ignored. Um, <coughs> and actually, I think the roots of this problem uh, lie in the very period that Wolfram was so obsessed with and so interested in, um, the Renaissance and the 17th century. The Renaissance, um, it, well, architecture in the Renaissance is, of course, as you, as you all know, it goes from, you know, is the sort of stylistic change from the Gothic to the classical. But there's lots and lots going on in, in architecture and architectural theory at the same time as that. Another thing you could you, you could see um, you can see in Renaissance thinking about architecture is, is a shift perhaps from thinking about architecture as something related to the human body and something related to sort of three-dimensional space into something that can be represented on paper in, into something that is two-dimensional. Here's a very, very famous and probably the most famous image of them all from the Renaissance, um, Leonardo's Vitruvian Man. What's often forgotten about this very famous image is actually about architecture. Um, it comes from the page, it, well, it, well, it, it, is, it is a depiction of a theory that comes from the pages of the Roman author on architecture, Vitruvius. Um, and it, it comes from Vitruvius's, um, Vitruvius's discussion of the proportions of the human body and how they might relate to perfect geometrical proportions which in turn relate to architecture and how we should be designing architecture. So for Vitruvius and for early Renaissance theory, the human body, the proportions of the human body were, were integral to, um, to how architecture works and how, and how geometry and architecture works. They're, they're intrinsically linked. But at the same time as this, um, I think there was a sort of there was almost a sort of movement away from that. And Leonardo is sort of implicated in this to a certain extent, because whilst Renaissance um, architectural theorists were interested in the relationship between architecture and the human body, which if you think about it is an inherently spatial relationship, um, they were also interested in ways in which architecture could be depicted in two dimensions. Here I'm talking about perspective, of course. Another <coughs> image, actually an earlier image, but an equally, almost equally famous one, um, shows what is a building, you know, building um, on, on a, on a such a wall fresco. But it's a building depicted in, in, in perspective. Masaccio and, and his sort of fellow um, 15th century painters had, mar had come up with a way, had come up with a technique of representing three-dimensional space um, in two dimensions, in this case on a wall plane, but also on paper. And this, you know, obviously is a very important moment in the history of paintings. Uh, we know, we know, all know it all, we, we know it, and it's very familiar. But it has important implications for architecture as well, because now architecture doesn't necessarily need to only exist in three dimensions. It can be rendered um, on a flat surface. So in Masaccio's uh, Holy Trinity, we see a, a Roman barrel vault um, surrounded by, uh, well, surrounded by a, 
Ionic arch and a and two Corinthian columns, either or two Corinthian pilasters either side, receding into the distance. And Masaccio has mastered the, the, the art of perspective, so the, the what we might call the coffering on the on the vault um, recedes yet smaller. It's a you know it's it's the perfect representation of of a of a of a, of a classical space in two dimensions. So if the fifteenth and sixteenth century had, had come up with a way of in paintings representing space in pictures. At the same time, people writing about architecture and thinking about architecture and designing architecture um, are, are, are coming up with similar ways of putting built space onto paper, which hadn't, to any great degree, been done, really done before. There are, there are some medieval precedents, but, but not to any great degree. In the 16th century, or perhaps slightly earlier, architects come up with ways of represent other ways of representing buildings on paper although they, they also use perspective perspective drawing is used extensively in this period but the principal way that renaissance architects come up with to represent space on paper is um this system represented here by um, palladio's illustrations for the 1556 italian translation of vitruvius here, here palladio uses um three ways of showing a building um, on paper, and in doing so, sort of fattens the building, puts it puts it into two dimensions. His first uh, way is, of course, the plan. So this is of a, a Roman temple that 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 that, that, that is writing about, but Palladio is illustrating a thousand years later. So he comes up with a plan. In this case, columns are represented by little round circles, and then um, you know, and then the, the the walls of the temple, the cellar of the temple, the body of the temple um, is, uh, is is shown um, in plan, and we've got some stairs as well. Palladio then moves on to um, what we call a section. This is the second way of representing <coughs> architecture, which is that <coughs> Palladio just sort of cuts down the middle of the building. All the blank space is where the masonry has been sort of sliced down through, so we can see how the construction of the building works. And also we can see how the interior decoration uh, might relate to the exterior decoration. So the section is a very useful way of, of, of showing how decorative elements in the building work, but also how structural elements work. And then Palladio's third way, or the Renaissance's third way of showing your building um, on paper is, is in elevation. So those are the three plan section and elevation. And elevation is just the, the front of it, shown normally orthogonally. Um, here, in this case, you know, we, we can see Palladio showing us, um, again, decorative elements. So, so uh, this is our Ionic portico, an Ionic temple um, that uh, Palladio, well, Palladio just gives us a straightforward front view of it. I'm actually in the section he's turned the ionic columns around the other way around, so we're looking we're looking through the building from the from the middle of it. And although this isn't interested in perspective like the previous image, it again is interested in it's doing the same thing. It's putting um, architectural space onto paper, rendering it flat and rendering it understandable. I think that's that, that's what Palladio is trying to do here. He what what he and his fellow Renaissance architectural theorists have realized is that it's quite, quite, it's quite difficult to think about architecture when you think about it spatially. Thinking about volume and thinking about how we experience and use that volume is a difficult thing. And therefore, you need to come up with ways of representing it and making it easy to comprehend. In this case, Palladio um, uh, and, and the editor of this Vitruvius, Daniel Barbaro, are interested in communicating ideas about ancient architecture to their readers. So. This is accompanied by dense text, both both the translation of Vitruvius and Barbaro's commentary, um, which are, you know, explain to the readers how this temple worked, what the principles of Roman temple architecture were, um, where all the columns go, what's it for, blah, 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 um, how the decorative scheme works, how the structure works. And the Palladio's illustrations sh show how this works in a straightforward way. This, this, right, we've laid the building flat, here, here it is in plan, here it is in section, here it is in elevation. So it's a way of, of making architecture easier to understand. And what it also does is it makes architecture easy to see. It makes it visible. Um, pr previously, if you think you know, architectural space is quite difficult to, 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 to comprehend just visually, but here it is made easy. It's made flat. And this is an architecture that, that, we, that we sort of experience only through vision. We look at it on paper. There's nothing more we can do with it. Um, even the space, even the volume, is depicted um, in a way that we can just see it. We don't, we don't need to 
use any of our other senses to deal with it. This is sort of architectural vision. And at the same time as, uh, or, or shortly after Palladio is doing this, other writers are, are becoming interested in vision and, um, and, and, and how vision works and how, how potentially important vision might be um, in thinking and understanding the world. And I think there's a sort of, there's a two-pronged attack in, in the 16th and 17th centuries on architecture. One from the kind of sort of perspective drawing and plan section elevation representation. The other part of the attack on architecture um, is from scientific thinking, um, and particularly in the 17th century. Here's a very famous 17th century scientist and philosopher, Descartes, who never really wrote about <coughs> architecture, um, doesn't seem to have been particularly interested in architecture, but he's somebody whose writings end up, end up becoming very, very important, I think, in the history of architecture. But one particular aspect of Descartes' writings that have profound influence on architectural theory is his writings on optics um, and his writings on vision of which Descartes was obsessed with. There's loads and loads of texts by Descartes on vision. The, the, the Dioptrix is one of the most famous ones, um, which, is, which is partly a sort of anatomical investigation of, of the eye and how the eye works, but also um, a lengthy investigation of how vision works, um, you know, how, or how, how vision works in, in, in relation to the other senses and in relation to how we think and, and how we perceive the world around us. Descartes' conclusions, sort of very, very, very roughly mapped out, are that vision is the principal sense, the principal sense through which we understand the world, the, the sense that dictates all others, um, and to which the other senses are largely subservient to. So in this famous but co quite complicated diagram, Descartes cont contemplates how we, how, we, how we understand and look at an object, um, in this case an arrow. Descartes always uses arrows to prove his... his points about the senses, I don't know why. Um, but this, so this, this image shows Descartes thinking about how the, an image before us um, enters our, 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 you know, our brain through the eyes and goes into a gland um, in the brain, um, which is then linked through the nerves to um, the, the rest of the senses. So when, then we might reach out and touch the arrow um, and, and experience it through the other senses, but we've all already comprehended it um, through vision and through sight. Descartes' sort of obsession with optics and, and with how the eye works creates a, a way of think, a, a, a movement in Western thought that largely um, prioritises vision over all others. It's called, sort of, well, various philosophers have come up with fancy names for it. Ocular centrism is one, um, the hegemony of vision is another. And this, combined with what we saw in the previous century with Palladio, has important implications for architecture because now. If Western thought is in this position where vision is so important um, and architecture has already been reduced onto paper in two dimensions, architecture then becomes something um, that is inherently visual. So architects can represent buildings on paper, which they do, and then when they build them, they're building them to they're building them with what they look like in mind, first and foremost. They're thinking of what their users will see. They can do this through elevation plan and section, so they can work out. Um, they can work out what their elevations are going to look like on paper, then they build them, and then they can predict what people are going to, when people look at them, what they're, what they're going to look like. And actually the history of sort of architecture from the Renaissance on is, is obsessed with the idea of what buildings are going to look like, perhaps over and above what buildings might be like to experience. Um, I don't think architects in the, in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, on the whole, don't tend to be that interested in what, 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 what people's feelings might be about buildings, how they might experience them. They're overly obsessed, over, overly obsessed with what they actually look like. Of course, I'm generalising here, and I'll show some examples where that isn't the case later. But it is, I think, a prominent strain in thinking about architecture across across sort of three three, three centuries. If we sort of fast forward and, and, and dip into the 18th century, um, we can I think we can see this in action. This is a, a, a conceptual design by the French architect Boulet. Um, most of whose designs were conceptual, he never builds anything because most of his designs are unbuildable. Um, and Boulet is perhaps an extreme case in, in this, but Boulet, I think, is one of those architects, one of those architects that's been sort of influenced by Descartes and earlier Renaissance theory. Boulet is obsessed with what buildings look like, and in particular, he's obsessed with the idea that buildings should be geometrically, they should look geometrically perfect. Here is a plan 
um, something that doesn't get built. It's a plan for a for, for a palace um, by Boulet, which is geometrically perfect. It's it's perfectly symmetrical, and it's it's a complicated piece of, of geometry. This as a plan, it's a plan, of course. Uh, it, 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 it's it's sort of a building and and parkland seen from the air, but. We get no sense from this what this building might actually be, what, what it might be like to be in this building, but then Boulet's not very interested in that. Boulet want, what Boulet is interested in is making three-dimensional space geometrically perfect on paper. In a way, you, this is sort of, I mean, it, it almost sort of proves Wolfling right this. This is extreme, decor pure decoration. Right? It's building reduced to pure, simple geometric form just because it looks nice, because it, it looks impressive. And even in, in the elevations of Boulet's buildings, which again don't get built, um, we can see this. Here, um, in his famous conceptual design for a cenotaph for Newton, um, again, the building is, is it, it's a building that's just made out of pure, simple geometry, very big, monumental geometry. But from this elevation, we get very little sense of, of we get little sense of what this building might actually be like to experience. And again, I don't think Boulet is particularly interested in that. What he's interested in is, is making a um, perfect geometrical building. It's just a series of huge geometrical shapes, this. And again, I, I'm, dealing in, I'm dealing in general extreme cases, but, but I think, they, I think they, prove them, they, they, they make an important point. If we go forward to the 20th century, um, this idea of, of, of architecture as something that is experienced first and foremost through the visual and something that can be rendered um, on paper in the visual reach, reaches its apogee, I think. And its apogee comes about um, through the work of the famous high priest of modernist architecture, Le Corbusier, who might very well be the villain of this lecture, I'm afraid. <laughs> Here he is sitting at his desk with his famous glasses. Whenever you see Corbusier, he's always wearing his famous glasses, which sort of goes with his, um, with his sort of oculocentric mindset, I think. Corbusier, perhaps above any other architect, was obsessed with vision and about what buildings look like, but also what the user sees in a building. Um, he writes on this, um, and, but, 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 but the, the best place to see Corb, sorry, all architects sort of fondly refer to him as Corb, um, so the best place to see Corb's obsession with vision is in his drawings. There's a, there's a remarkable series of Corbusier drawings um, that, um, in which we see Corbusier working out how architectural space works in terms of vision and vision alone. This figure appears in, in a number of Corbusier drawings, this um, stick figure with an enormous disembodied eye floating above their head. This is Corbusier's user of architecture who, is, uh, who, who uses architecture only through their eye. And Corbusier, this drawing below shows Corbusier plotting the route of a, of a person through a building, but it's the person with, um, with who, who, who only sees the building through their eyes. And what Corbusier is doing here is working out views. He's working out where the, what the building will look like, at, look like at any moment that the user is experiencing it. So in a way, I mean, this is this is treating this the, the the space. This is treating the building spatially, but it's seeing the space only through the eye. It's no interest in the other senses or in anything, in any, any of the other re ways in which we might experience architecture, either think through things like memory or, th or, or, or fear or, or, or the emotions. In um, one of Corbusier's writings towards a new architecture in 1959, Corbusier spells this out. The, the, the principal way in which we experience architecture, Corbusier says, is through our eyes. So he says that man looks at the creation of architecture with his eyes, which are five feet six inches from the ground. Corbusier wasn't very tall. But um, so, so he's thinking about uh, what Corbusier is saying here is that the architecture must be built with, 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 the, with the height of the eyes of the floor in mind. So that is where we are coming from when we go into buildings. That is how we experience them from this level. So they should be designed with that level in mind. In a way, this is sort of oddly reminiscent of, 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 uh, of Vitruvian man in that it posits a relationship between architectural space and the human body. And we experience architecture through the body. That's what Corbusier is saying. But for Corbusier, the body is the eyes. We experience architecture through the eyes, and therefore the proportions, uh, the height of the eyes of the floor, if, if there's any relationship between architectural proportion and the proportions of the human body, they relate to the height of the eyes of the floor five foot six inches in Corbusier's case. 
you know, here is, and, 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 and this, is the this is the body that experiences Corbusier's architecture. This is the human body that exists in his architecture. It is a sort of small, badly drawn stick figure and a huge disembodied eye. And it's amazing how this idea sort of not floats about in modernism, um, particularly in, in obviously in Corbusier's followers. Here's a drawing by um, one of Corbusier's disciples, Oscar Neymar, um, famous Brazilian modernist who designed uh, Brazilian capital, Brasilia. And in, in, in Neymar's drawings, they're even more extreme than Corbusier's. The stick figure's gone, it's just eyes. Eyes looking out. What, what will the building look like? What will the view be like out of the window? What will the eye see in what will what will the eye see in any particular point in, in, in the architectural space? And if you think about it, that, that sort of the history of, of 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 architectural theory up to this point, starting in the Renaissance, has been sort of building towards this. The minute you, you start putting built space down onto paper in three dimensions, you end up in this sort of mindset. Suddenly architecture becomes a series of two-dimensional views. Um, just what does it look like at any particular point in your experience of it? And if we sort of move away from the world of theory now and, and look, in, look, look at some specific designs, I think we can see this um, at work. And perhaps a sort of extreme case again, but an interesting case is one of Corbusier's own designs, a very famous design, the Villa Savoie um, in France, which Corbusier builds in the end of the 1920s. This building is very famous for lots of other things. Uh, lots of Corbusier's design principles are, are embedded into this design. But one thing I th one thing I think is really interesting about it is that you can see this building as a series of views that have been very very carefully constructed by the architect. At every point in this building, Corbusier is thinking about what you're going to look at and what the building is going to look like, but also what the world around the building is going to look like from within the building. Um, so these, the windows in this building, I think, are really interesting. They, 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 they're perhaps not as big as you might expect for an architect who's so obsessed with vision. But what they do do is they train um, the vision of the user onto particular things and onto particular views. And if we go inside the villa, um, the windows frame the rest of the architecture I think, in a very controlled and close way. So we're always given specific views that are out into this courtyard or out onto the world around us. This is not an architecture that seems to be very interested in the other senses or in emotions or anything like that. It's an architecture that, that, as I said, is only really interested in what, what the building might look like or what you can see out of the building. And there's that sort of th th there's that window we were just looking out of, um, looking into it from the outside, and you can see the other windows sort of controlling where the eye might go. We can imagine this space, I think, you, I can imagine this space being negotiated by Cabuzio's stick figure, massive eye person. And again, if you go up the staircase, it's just a series of rather, rather sort of cold and rigid views. I don't more, no, that's it. Okay, so uh, perhaps an extreme example, but a building um, that, that seems to embody what Corbusier is doing in his drawings and his theory at the same time. And actually, this building is designed um, not long after Wolfram has written his Principles of, of Art History. I'm not saying that, that Wolfram and Corbusier have, met, have much in common, but, but they do seem to be both treating architecture in a very similar way as something inherently visual, something that you can just look upon, look at, and think about in terms of in terms of, of decoration in, in Wolflin's case, or in terms of, 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 of the view um, in Corbusier's. At the same time as this, though, um, the, the, this, uh, these ideas are beginning to be challenged. And the challenge doesn't, I don't think, come from architecture or architectural theory initially. The challenge comes from philosophy, and it comes in the form of a challenge on Descartes. Um, it, it doesn't hit architecture until a bit, late, a bit later, perhaps. In, at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, a group of philosophers um, decided, well, decided they'd had enough of, of, of Descartes' theories on vision and the world and decided to attack him. Um, these are a group of philosophers that we might call phenomenologists. They're interested in other things as well. It's a, complicated, um, it's a complicated branch of philosophy. But one of the things that the early phenomenologists do is um, they go for Descartes in a big way. And what they, one of the things they, they, they dislike most about Descartes is this obsession with vision. Perhaps the two, the two biggest Descartes bashers are um, Edmund Husserl, writing at the end of the 19th century, 
and the 20th century philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who I think is the is the is sort of ceaseless in his attack on Descartes' theory of vision. Both of these philosophers write extensively about the other senses, um, about how important they are, but they also write about some of the other things that that might that might dictate our experience of space, things like memory, um, things like experience. Um, how we exist in the world, what, what, what the world means to us, um, not just in terms of vision. And actually one of the texts that I've set the second years um, here, uh, Bachelard's Poetics of Space, is in, informed by, by this particular branch of philosophy. And once, 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 once phenomenological philosophy takes hold in Western thought and begins to challenge some of the principles of Cartesianism, um, it is only a matter of time before it creeps into architecture and, and people writing about architecture begin to think of its implications. And suddenly, you know, architectural theorists and writers on architecture suddenly begin to think, well, maybe, maybe, we've been think maybe we're too obsessed with vision. Maybe we've th been thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe we've ignored another bu a bunch of other stuff. One such writer, um, a very important writer on the, in this respect, is a writer called Henri Lefebvre, who isn't necessarily a phenomenologist, but he's not, actually. He's, a, he's, he's, he's actually a Marxist. But... A lot of his theory, I think, is influenced by phenomenology, or at least it's doing the same things. In particular, the first critique of, of how Western thought has come to understand space um, is, is particularly important here. Lefebvre writes a whole book on space. It's one of the earliest books to be written on the, on the, on the, on the subject of space as an idea. Um, and most of, most of this text is not necessarily that related to architecture. Um, it's more general than that. But there are moments in which Lefebvre does address architecture, and he says, I think, really interesting things. He, in fact, um, critiques much of what I've just been talking about. Okay, so here is um, a lengthy quote from, from, from the introduction to the text, in which Lefebvre, <coughs> Lefebvre, Lefebvre turns thinking about space into thinking about architectural space. And what, and, and what he does is, is critique contemporary architectural practice. <coughs> So uh, Lefebvre says, as for the eye of the architect, it is no more innocent than the, lot, than the lot he is given to build on or the blank sheet of paper on which he makes his first sketch. His subjective space is freighted with all too objective meanings. It is a visual space, a space reduced to blueprints, to mere images, to that, quote, world of the image, which is the enemy of the imagination. These reductions are accentuated and justified by the rule of linear perspective. Within the spatial practice of modern society, the architect disconces himself in his own space. He has a representation of this space, one which is bound to graphic elements, to sheets of paper, plans, elevations, sections, perspective views of facades, modules, and so on. This conceived space is thought by those who make use of it to be true. Its distant ancestor is the linear perspective developed as early as the Renaissance, a fixed observer, an immobile perceptual field, a stable visual world. What Lefebvre does here is he critiques architecture, but he turns the, on the whole the history of architecture from the Renaissance and just brings it all together. He says, well, the Renaissance came up with, 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 with linear perspective. It came up with planned elevations and sections and perspective views. Um, what that's created is what he calls an immobile perceptual field, a stable visual world. And it's very, very easy to see Corbusier's disembodied eye drawings lurking behind much of, of what Lefebvre is critiquing here. Um, you know, where we've got sort of the, you know, the world of the the world of the image, um, the immobile perceptual field. Uh, the, what what um, uh, where are we now? Well, the eye of the architect, where he, where he opens, and he and he calls that he doesn't see that as a sort of innocent thing. He sees this as a very arch and, and thought through thing that's been given a lot of consideration. <coughs> <coughs> but what Lefebvre also does here, and I think this is a really, really important point, okay, so this is an attack on, on architectural practice, an attack on architectural practice over the last 300 years. But it's not just the architect that, that's to blame here, it's not just the architect that is complicit in this. Lefebvre also, at the end of the quote, thinks about, about users of architecture. He's, he, he calls the architecture conceived space, conceived by the architect, and it's conceived on paper. But then he says that this conceived space is thought by those who make use of it to be true. And he puts true in italics. Those aren't my italics, those are his. What he's saying here is that we've become so accustomed to thinking about architecture in this way, in, in graphically on paper, um, and in terms of perspective, and in terms of a mobile perceptual field, that it's not only architects that are now thinking this, it's how we actually experience buildings. 
people, users in the mid-20th century, are experiencing buildings through vision, through, through mobile perceptual fields, um, and almost in terms of, of planned section elevation. We've managed to convince ourselves that this is what architecture, what the experience of architecture should be like. Although for Lefebvre, and Lefebvre goes on to say, well, it's not like that. There's lots and lots of other things going on here as well. But for some reason, we've ignored all that. We've let a bunch of architects and Renaissance philosophers shape, make us think about architecture in this particular way, which I think is a really important point. It's a really interesting point. The idea that we, you know, we can blame Corbusier as, mu Corbusier as much as we like, but maybe we're all actually following him. Um, maybe you know, Wolfen is following him and, and, and his lot. Maybe we, when we go around buildings, we just look at them. Um, we, we look at them through our eyes only. We, we, we see them um, in terms of sections or elevations of plans. This, I think, is a really important moment. It's a really important quote. And, and again, the second years in the room, the three texts that we're going to look at in class later, um, Bachelard, Bourdieu, and Foucault, Foucault, to all some extent are engaging with this problem. Um, some of them are, to some extent, trying to find ways out of it, to explain how we might experience architecture in ways that aren't just about, um, about, about a immobile perceptual field and a stable visual world, as Lefebvre puts it. So this, I think, is the sort of the pivot in this lecture, the moment in which, in which that history of architectural theory is challenged, um, and then a, a challenge is then made for us and for architectural theorists and writers to come up with Way, other ways of seeing architecture and other ways of experiencing architecture. Quite how we do that is very, very difficult, but perhaps because um, we've got ourselves so we, we, we're, in, we, we're, in, we're in now such a sort of defined m mindset about how to represent and think about architecture. And I think one of those, the, the reasons that those three texts are, are rather complicated is because they're dealing with a complicated thing. They're dealing with the experience of space in a way that isn't necessarily visual. Or even if it is visual, in the case of one of their texts, it's visual in a, more, in a much more complicated way than an architectural theorist have, con have, have conceived of it. What I'm now going to do, though, is I'm going to, uh, for the rest of this lecture, look at the work of three architects who were contemporaries of Le Corbusier, in whose work we might potentially see ways out of the first problems. These all the three architects that I think treat space in a very different way to Le Corbusier. Um, and in a way that, 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 that opens up questions, other questions about how space works. In doing so, I'll introduce some of the ideas that I think are in, our, in, in, in the three texts that, that some of you have been reading. The first architect I want to talk about is a group of architects, perhaps, are contemporaries of Le Corbusier, architects working in the Still movement in, in Holland in the end of the 1910s, beginning of the 1920s. The Gestil movement is, is, is always seen as part of modernism. Um, many of you will probably know it for, for, its, for, for its, its most famous protagonist, Pierre Mondrian, um, whose easel paintings and wall paintings I'm sure you're all aware of. But the Gestil movement also had architects working in it. Um, and these were a group of architects, two in particular, Thier van Dostberg and, and Garrett Rietveld, both of whom were completely obsessed with the idea of space in buildings. And their thinkings on space, I think, are very different from Le Corbusier. Even though De Stille and Le Corbusier are often grouped together as, as part of a sort of international modernist movement, Rietveld and Van Dosberg are very, very different in how they conceive of space. One of the things that the De Stille architects think about in space is how space might be a much more complicated phenomenon than most architects conceive of it as. One of the general principles of De Stille art and architecture is a sense of universality. Uh, uh, in, in, in the modern world, as, as Van Dostberg and Rietveld see it, um, the individual is far less important than the, than the universal. And as a result, they, they, in their architecture, they try to sort of break down the boundaries between private and, 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 uh, and, and public space, but also between exterior and interior space. Van Dostberg here is playing around with some conceptual designs, um, the idea that space, that architectural space can be something homogenous. That it can that can flow between interior and exterior space and between individual planes. Um, this image, I mean, obviously, this is completely unbuildable. But um, architecture here is reduced to just a series of geometrical planes floating in space. This is a rather complicated conception of space, a space that flows in and around objects, in a way that, unlike sort of Corbusier and his and and his eye, um, we don't we don't just see space as something flat. That's a series of flat images. Here, space is much more dynamic and fluid. 
Van Dosberg um, in the in the Digital Manifesto talks about this. He says that the new architecture, the, the new architecture that they're espousing, is anti-cubic. That is to say, it does not try to freeze the different functional space cells in one closed cube. Rather, it throws the functional space cells, as well as the overhanging planes, balcony volumes, centrifugally from the core of the cube. And through this means, height, width, depth, and time, i.e. an imaginary four-dimensional entity, approaches a totally new plastic expression in open spaces. In this way, architecture acquires a more or less floating aspect that, so to speak, works against the gravitational forces of nature. Which is all very well and good in theory, but, but you then you have to build it. Then you have to try and build an architecture um, that throws the functional space cells um, centrifugally from the core of the cube, which is going to be quite hard. In only one building do, do, do Rietveld and Van Dostler come up with a way of doing this, really. Um, and this is the Schroeder House in Utrecht, the, the most famous Schistil building, which in a way looks like many of those Van Dostler drawings I was showing you a minute ago. Here, the, the, any sense of the difference between exterior and interior space is broken down because Rietveld just complicates the wall plan, the wall plane to such a great degree. He places these series of, of, of rectangles um, in, in rather complicated positions on the wall plane to break it down, to, to make it unclear where the building begins and ends. One of Rietveld's ideas behind this building is that the, all the windows can be open to 90 degrees, and the opening of the windows can complicate the space further. If we go to windows open mode, um, the, wind, the, the whole building begins to break down. It almost looks like a sort of frozen explosion, and it begins to look like those Van Dostberg drawings. OK, so this is a very flexible space. This is a very free-flowing space in the building, and it's one that breaks down boundaries between interior and exterior. But in what ways does it go beyond thinking about the building in terms of vision? Well, if we go inside, again, this is the interior. Again, there's a sense of planes floating in free space here. The furniture colludes with this. The furniture is implicit. The famous Rietveld chair um, looks like just bits of rectangles floating, coloured rectangles floating in space. But it's in the plan of this building that, that Rietveld takes us to the most extreme. In the, the plan, um, Rietveld designs to be flexible and up to the user. So this is the plan of the um, upper floor in closed mode and open mode. In closed mode, a series of screens can be pulled across to separate areas according to how, what the user wants to do with them. And notice that, that uh, Rietveld leaves it quite open to the, to the user, work or sleeping, work or sleeping, sleeping, living or dining. All these screens can be moved away to create open plan. This is, a, you know, this is an architect thinking about how, how, how people use buildings, how the function of buildings might change and alter depending on the user or depending on the time of day or depending on, on, on what's going on in the house. So this, again, there's a sense of flexibility in space that's reflected on the exterior that's mirrored in the plan. This building can change, it can shift. The planes can move, um, space can flow in and around them. Um, and function could flow in and around them. Function is part of this. You can do different things in different spaces depending on what you do with the house and its walls. In a way, the, this, this, I think, reflects some of the ideas in the text I've made you read. The idea that space is a complicated thing and how we interact with space is a complicated thing. Even when spaces can be sort of demarcated as having particular functions, they can be quite complicated. Um, you can do what you like in here. You can work or you can sleep, depending on, on what you want to do or how you arrange the, the walls. And again, this, what, what, uh, uh, something else this house does is it complicates the, the, the boundaries between the interior and the exterior and within individual, individual boundaries in the house. It fragments them. It, it, it complicates them. In a way, I think perhaps that, in a way that I think that perhaps the Bourdieu text we, we, we read is interested in as well. I mean, it's interested in the complexities of space and it's interested in the boundaries between different spaces and how those boundaries might be contested or complicated or, or uh, inscribed in particular ways of thinking or particular ways of doing. I'm not, so, I'm not saying there's a direct analogy between Bourdieu and Rietveld here, but I think that this building introduces some of those ideas. Plus, it's an interesting building. It's an interesting way of thinking about space and it represents a different way of thinking an architect who's thought very carefully about how space works and has come up with something a new way in which a building might might work with space. Another architect um, who I want to who I want to talk about and an architect who's very unique in the in the early twentieth <coughs> century um, is Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, one of Corbusier's enemies, they hated each other. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright famously called the, the Villa Savoir a box on stilts. 
Wright, in his architecture, particularly his early architecture, um, not his later architecture, that's rubbish. We're going to need to talk about the early stuff today. In his early architecture, Wright is particularly interested in spatial, in spatial properties of buildings as well. And, what he, and he does something rather unique for this period with the spatial properties of his, of his buildings, particularly his early prairie houses. He's interested in, um, firstly, the house as sort of protective, warming, nurturing space, um, how it might protect the household and the family. He's also interested in the symbolic properties of space. In all of the early prairie houses, um, Wright always puts the hearth in the middle. This is the plan of the Ward's Willett house. And the whole plan of the house, all the rooms of the house, sort of rotate around a central space, which is the hearth, which, which Wright sees as the symbol of the family. Okay? Um, the hearth is the most sacred, warm, protective space in the house, and it's in the centre of the house. All other spaces um, revolve around it and are largely subservient to it. If we go in the house, well, that's, that's, the, that's the half there, um, in the centre of a series of, of, of spaces of, of, that seem to sort of move around it. Here Wright is saying something about the symbolic properties of space, which goes, goes much further, you know, that in some ways go, goes, goes to addresses some of Lefebvre's concerns. Here space represents something, it means something, it means something symbolically, but it also could mean something in terms of memory, um, in terms of experiences. In other right houses, he, he, he creates spaces within spaces and, um, that, that seem to sort of protect the user, um, that, 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 that create spaces around the user, spaces with interior spaces within interior spaces. In the Robbie House in Chicago, this famous example of this is the dining table, where famous, Wright's famous tall back chairs um, create in little separate interior spaces within interiors. The, 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 um, the roof also colludes in that, I think. There's a sense that this, this space wants to protect its users, wants to protect the family within it. Um, and again, there's a sort of sense of space having meaning here, having meaning in memory um, and meaning in experience. A classic, another classic example of this is, is Wright's obsession with play playrooms. Lots of these Wright houses have playrooms for children to play in, and they're always these warming, close, um, sort of nurturing spaces. And in Wright's architecture, we can see some of the ideas that Bourdieu talks about, the idea that the, ar the architectural space might have symbolic properties. <coughs> but we can also see some of the ideas that Bachelard is talking about, ideas about how memory um, experience, particularly childhood experience, might shape our interactions with spaces. I think you can, uh, you can just um, you can go around a Wright house reading Bachelard, and they just, they just work with each other perfectly. Um, these, these houses are the sort of almost sacred um, dreamlike spaces of childhood that Bachelard talks about. And again, it's a way of thinking about the building and a way of thinking about architecture that is very, very different from the Corbusier. Um, Wright, is, Wright is interested in, in, how, in how his users might experience these spaces, how they might be protected by them, in what way might they remind them of their own childhood. In actual fact, Wright had a very, very unhappy childhood, we're told. He's always moaning about it in his writing. You could sort of argue that, that, that what he's doing here is making up for his for his unhappy childhood, he's protecting others. Um, these incredible nurturing playrooms are, are, are making up for what he lacked when he was a child. You know, if, you, if you're into sort of psychobiography and architecture, then, that's, then, then, then that might work. The final architect I want to talk about, again, I'm sort of movement in architecture, and again, is the, uh, the contemporary with Le Corbusier and, and Wright and, uh, and de Stille, um, is, is in Russia, and that's, in, in, that's Russian constructivism another modernist movement, um, that again, I think, does things with space in a different way to, to other, um, other architects working in this period. And again, it opens up questions of how we might think about space more generally. In constructivist architecture, much like de Stil, actually, they're interested in making new spaces, unfamiliar spaces, spaces that break down and challenge traditional forms of making space in architecture. Here's a very famous constructivist building, one of the only ones that ever got built. Um, this is Malnikov's Soviet Pavilion from 1925, which, in fact, I think is sort of quite close to the Steel project here. In the building itself, we don't really get much sense of where the begin building begins or ends. The space is a very complicated one because it has this staircase running through the middle of it. Um, these, these, well, I don't know what we call them actually. Um, these, these roof elements, complicated, fragmented as well. It, this, this seems like the Steel architecture, fragmented space. The sense of of of, of of geometrical planes moving in free-floating space. But the plan is totally bonkers. I mean, there's, this, there's never been a plan like this in the history of architecture. 
it looks nothing like um, any of Palladio's plans or any of I mean, it's a million miles away from Boulet's geometrically perfect planned palace. It's totally insane. And 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 the plan you you can't read. Really, it's sort of it's built on the principles of diagonals, I suppose. But again, there's no sense of how of, of where this space begins and ends. What's going on here, of course, well, for Melnikov, this, this re the reasons behind this are different from Rietveld. Melnikov is less interested in um, in complicating sort of interior and exterior. He's more interested in articulating the newness and mod modernity of his world in space. Because this is immediately after the, the Russian Revolution. These architects are wanting to express their new political system and their new life way of life in space. And to do that, they're rejecting the whole of the Western canon of architecture, they're coming up with new different forms of space um, that reflect the how society has become a different space in 1920s Russia. But they're doing something else as well, and, and, and that's sort of linked to that, because that suggests that architectural space can have a political meaning, it can embody political values, and it could also potentially do things for politics, it could, it could be political itself. This jolly looking building is... Um, one of the only other only examples of, of constructivism that actually gets built. This is the Narkomfin apartments uh, in Moscow from, from the late 1920s, built by Moisei Ginsburg. This is a, a, a big apartment block that was built in, in, in the middle of Moscow for civil servants, work, party workers who worked for the government um, to live in. And on the outside, actually, as, I mean, as you can see now, it's falling down. Um, here's what it, here, here it was in happier days. Um, on the outside, it looks like sort of Corbusian modernism. It's, it, you know, it, it looks like sort of the kind of architecture that's being built in lots of places across across Europe in this period. Although it's got a, a quite quite a funky plan. If we if we go inside and look at the plan, um, we can perhaps see some elements of the constructivist idea of, of creating new and and, and, and dynamic spaces. Um, there aren't many buildings in, in in the Western world in this period that have a plan like that. But what, make this, what makes this plan so extraordinary is um, the way that the space works in terms of private and communal. In fact, so these are all individual elements, these are all individual flats or apartments that the, that, the, that the workers live in. But they are sleeping spaces only. These pink spaces here are the communal spaces which contain the kitchens and the living areas. Um, this is communism in space, okay? So everyone goes home and sleeps, but then the rest of the day is spent communally. They cook together, they live together. Which is good, you know, if you're, if, if, if you're a sort of die-hard communist, that's great, you're going to love this. But potentially what the building does is also make people think like that, okay? So if you, if you live in this building and, and suddenly you, your flat doesn't have a kitchen, well, you're going to be forced to have to cook, use the communal kitchen, right? It sounds a bit like student accommodation, I know, but but, but okay. So, but, but in this case, these are sort of you know, these are these are workers, these are private individuals um, that are that are working for the state and are sort of renting off the state. But and the building, in a way, is trying to make them behave in a certain way. It's trying to make them. It's, it's trying to make them adhere adhere to a political system. But it's also actually changing their behaviour and making them live in a particular way according to the principles of the state. And actually, I mean, Ginsburg makes this. Ginsburg says this um, in, his, in, in his writings at the same at the, when he's designing this. See, um, Ginsburg says in 1924 that we can no longer compel the occupants of a particular building to live collecti collectively as we have attempted to do in the past. I yes, we have tried to make people alter their behaviour through our, through the spaces we're building, but he admits uh, generally with negative results. We must provide for the possibility of a gradual transition to communal utilisation in a number of different ways. We considered it absolutely necessary to incorporate certain features that would stimulate the transition to a socially superior mode of life. Stimulate, but not dictate. I gradually coerce people into behaving in certain, in certain ways, not just telling them outright. The space here, I think, is taking on... Architectural space takes on a really interesting... Um, it, it, the role that space is playing here is really interesting. Space is, is, a, is a tool. It's, a, it's, an it's the apparatus by which Ginsburg and the state could, could change people's ways. Um, it, it could, could the, 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 the gradual transition to communal utilisation is being carried through, is being, is being, the work is being done by the space of the building. Here, space is being thought of as something that can fundamentally affect the user's behaviour. This gives a lot of power to the architect and even more power to the state. 
but it, but it, but it, but it, but 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 it's not. But it goes beyond Corbusier sort of controlling the, the user's vision. Here, the user's behaviour, the way the user thinks, the way the user lives, the way the user um, sort of lives their day-to-day -day life is being shaped and dictated by the building. And of course, it's ideas like that that, that Foucault is talking about in Panopticism. And for all of Ginsburg's sort of, um, you know, for, for, for all of Ginsburg's hopes, that the, the Narkomfin doesn't seem very, very far removed. Um, from Foucault's prison, this is a space that suddenly um, is not just um, is not just there to be sort of experienced um, through the eye. This is through vision. This is a space that is now fundamentally <coughs> behaviour. So we've gone from a position where um, where architecture is, is 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 sort of rendered on paper, is 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 made visual by the architect. Um, it's something that the architect can largely dictate in, in terms of two dimensions to a three dimensional space that is now. Fighting back, it's now it's now controlling people and altering behaviour. So we we started. I started this lecture with suggesting that architecture is a sort of master art. It has mastery over all of, over over the other decorative arts. And I'm concluding it by saying that perhaps it's even more powerful than that. Actually, it has it has the potential to be the master of us as well. Thank you.